In 2010, which I'm sorry to say was actually 13 years ago, that doesn't seem right, but it is, um, a guy by the name of Kevin System built an app specifically to share photos that were taken on a phone. And while that might seem normal today, back in 2010, it was kind of a new feature that you could take photos on a phone. And what made his app different is that he built in all of these filters that you could easily, with one tap, change the look of this photo to make it look more interesting, to make it look better. And his app was called Instagram. And because these filters were incredibly easy to use, when you took a photo on your phone, which back then wasn't great quality, it didn't have an incredible camera, it was just incredible that it had a camera. And so you look back at those photos from the early days of Instagram, and most of them are really fuzzy. I look back at the very first photos that I posted on Instagram back in 2011, and when my daughter was just a baby. And I thought about showing them, but I know that that would embarrass her, and she's in the service today, so I'm not gonna do that to her. <laughs> But they're all very fuzzy. But I had those Instagram filters that made it really easy to make them look better. And these filters, because they were so easy to use, they became incredibly popular. And every app that had anything to do with photos started adding filters so that you could easily make your photo a little bit better, a little bit nicer, a little bit more interesting. And filters then led the way to us actually editing the photos and you can take acne off of your face and you can make it look like you didn't get sunburned at the soccer field this past weekend. <laughs> they have nothing on what people can do with Photoshop. Just recently, Ben Simmons, who's this NBA star, he's had a couple of rough seasons. And so kind of the, the news has been about how he's working really hard this offseason. He's going to get back in his tip-top shape. He's going to come back this year and have an incredible season. And he's been posting photos constantly of these workouts he's doing. And he recently posted a photo of himself, and he looked like he had put on so much muscle. He was absolutely jacked. It was really impressive. But someone post pointed out that he'd actually posted that same photo about two weeks earlier. It's the exact same background, it's the exact same people standing next to him, and his muscles are like half the size. He'd photoshopped the photo of himself to make it look like he was stronger than he actually was. That's what's been happening over the last 15 years. We've had all of these photos that are digitally altered, they're photoshopped, they're filtered. And because we're in this highly marketed to culture, the most marketed to culture the world has ever known, it's bred a lot of skepticism. We've all been around people that were like, they don't look anything like their Facebook profile picture, right? But they're clearly a filter on that latest selfie. And this is not only photos, but it's everything. There's spin, and there's marketing. And so it's bred a lot of suspicion and doubt and skepticism. And because of this, people don't take you at face value anymore. They don't believe you just because you say that they should. You have to build trust. You have to build legitimacy. You have to build this rapport, this relationship. Do you know that it used to be that people would show up at your doorstep and they would sell you a vacuum cleaner or dishes or Tupperware or Amway or whatever, and you would buy it from them? This stranger that you've never met before who knocked on your door, interrupted your day, and you would say, yes, this seems like an amazing product that will fix all of the problems in my house. I must have it. Today, if somebody shows up at your door unannounced, unexpected, it better be the Amazon guy delivering what you already ordered or someone who's lost, right? 
Because you're not going to buy something off of someone unless it's a six-year-old kid selling one of those world's finest candy bars. All of them can come by my house. Because before you make a purchase now, you're going to check out the online reviews. And you're going to compare it with six other options. I grew up in a church that was built during the age of door-to-door salesmen. And because it was built during the age of door-to-door salesmen, something that was incredibly effective for the church that I grew up in was door-to-door evangelism. And so at the age of 13, I learned how to take someone through the gospel presentation, to share the gospel with a stranger. I learned all of these verses in the Romans Road from Romans 3.10, 3.23, 6.23, 5.8, 10.9-10, and 13. I could show someone how they could put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and all of that was incredibly helpful. And I also memorized 1 Peter 3.15, which says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to any man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And we believed that what we were doing, sharing the gospel door to door, that's what we were doing. We were carrying the message to anyone who would ask us. But the thing is, they weren't asking us. We were knocking on the door and we were telling them. We did what was called canvassing, which means every Wednesday I would get on a bus with a lot of other teenagers and we would literally go into a neighborhood and we would knock on every door on every street in that neighborhood and we'd go back there every Wednesday until we'd canvass the entire neighborhood. So from the time I was 13 years old, I knocked on people's door and tried to share the gospel with them. So in 2005, when we moved here and I was the age of 22, I took that same playbook and I brought it to Chandler and we knocked on every door in Chandler, sharing the gospel presentation. Not long after I was here, we went through something that's called faith evangelism. And you took the word faith, and it was an acronym, and each letter stood for something, and you could take someone through the gospel presentation using that acronym. And we trained people here in the congregation so that they could carry that message. Over the last 18 years, that is just a couple of the ways that we have, we have worked to try to share the gospel with our community. But something happened one day really early on. It was a Saturday, kind of like this time of year, September, October, and I woke up that morning planning to do nothing but watch college football. I was on the couch, I was watching, you know, the first of what was probably going to be six hours of college football that morning, and Nicole was in the kitchen, and she was making some breakfast or starting some lunch, one of the two, and she said, hey, Daniel, someone just pulled into the driveway. Are we expecting anyone? And this was my reaction. Oh, man. And then she said, Daniel, they're carrying a Bible. And I went, oh, no. Now, here, I'm a preacher. All right? I'm a pastor. I'm standing up in front of you right now talking to you about the Bible. When some people showed up at my door on Saturday morning carrying a Bible, I did not want to talk to them. <coughs> they were a local cult group that wanted to convince us you know, that our way was wrong, their way was right. And it was at that moment that I was like, if I am a pastor and I don't appreciate, and I'm not willing to hear what someone has to say, I don't think it's going to be really effective. past 18 years, we've tried anything and everything to reach people with the gospel. And one of the things that I have enjoyed the most over the last 18 years, and I severely miss since we have not been able to do it since COVID, is we would go into the Ward County Jail, and we would share the gospel in the Ward County Jail, we would stand in front of the weights in the weight room, in the rec room, 
And the inmates, if they chose, they could come out of their cells into the weight room. And we would share the gospel with them. We would have a church service. And there were really only two reasons that people would come in. One, they wanted to get out of their cell and see someone from a different cell block. Or two, they were desperately searching for something. And in those moments, we had this opportunity to share hope with people who were desperate for it, that wanted it, that were asking for it. They were walking in asking for hope, like the people that Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 3.15. In everyday life, this rarely happens because there's all of these filters and distractions and facades that keep us from thinking about what is most important, what matters most. Last week, Pastor Eric showed a photo of a Walkman, um, a cassette player with headphones, referred to what I think as ancient technology or something like that, offended most of us who had one of those. Um, and he talked about the fact that for many people, they think of the gospel message as a Walkman, something that made sense for people back in the day, but it's outmoded now, it's outdated. We have better ways to enjoy music now. People think of it as something that made sense back when you didn't have all of the options we have now. But we know, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, and it has resonated with the deepest needs and brokenness in our heart and provided us with hope and restoration, we know that the gospel is not outmoded or outdated, but it's pertinent, it's applicable, applicable to today, right now, to the same problems that people have had for thousands of years. I would say that the gospel is not the Walkman, as the world sees it, but rather it's music. It's music that relates to us on a deep level. It's the same music that we play over and over and over again because we, we resonate with it. It speaks to us. You know, now when I want to listen to a song, I don't pop a cassette into a Walkman. I pull it up on Spotify on my iPhone, and I play it over Bluetooth to my Google speaker or to my noise-canceling headphones that are wireless. And if I had said that sentence 20 years ago, it would have sounded like gibberish. You're going to Bluetooth what? But you know, I use those modern devices to listen to music. But you know what music I listen to? I listen to a lot of the same music I listened to on my first Walkman. Because I grew up in the age when the best music was written. <laughs> we all have songs that we have resonated with, that we have related to, that we love, and we listen to them over decades, over long periods of time. Just last night, a, a friend of mine that I have made at the gym, he had told me that he was playing music at a restaurant in Newburgh, and so we went and had dinner, and while he's playing, and you know what, I was able to sing along because he was playing the classics. He's playing songs that probably most of us know, songs that have been around for multiple generations, songs that resonate with people. Because they resonate, they stick around. Songs that are just about what's happening right now in this current cultural moment, they're flashes in the pan, and they might be hot for a second, but they'll fade away. But those classics, those powerful songs, they'll, they'll be held onto. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we'll fall into the trap of thinking that the church is outmoded or outdated like a Walkman, and we'll try to update it. 
will say, we've got to update the church. We've got to update the message. We've got to make the message more appealing to this modern generation. And what we think we're doing is we're, we're making it more appealing, but we're actually changing the song. We're changing it away from what really resonates in the hearts and lives of people. And what we're attempting to do this month in September is talk to you about the overarching story of the Bible that has been there from the very beginning that speaks to the needs of every person's heart. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in the heart of man, meaning there is an eternal spiritual dimension to every person, every friend and neighbor. And what we have in God's word in this story is we have the message that resonates, the music that speaks to the need in every spiritual being, every heart. And what we want to hand you is we want to hand you the four main pillars of this overarching story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And because these are the pillars, because these are the pillars of what our heart and what our mind is searching for, seeking for, every faith and worldview answers these four main points, answers these four questions. To answer the question, where do we come from or why are we here? Pastor Eric talked to us about that last week in Creation. Every faith or worldview has to answer, why is everything so messed up? Why is everything broken? We're going to see that this morning in Genesis 3. Every faith and worldview has to answer the question, how do we fix this? Because it is broken. We'll answer that next week when we look at how God redeems us and rescues us. And the fourth question that every faith and worldview has to answer is, where are we going? And we'll see that the final Sunday of this month, when we look at restoration. Today we're going to see that second topic. We're going to see it in the fall. Pastor Eric pointed out that last week we see that God created all things good and beautiful. But that's not how it is right now, is it? Not everything is amazing right now, is it? This week, most likely, guaranteed, you had something that went wrong. Your child got sick, you forgot to carry sunscreen to the ball game, or the song that you practiced multiple times, you didn't start it off right on Sunday morning, right? Something goes wrong. Something is broken. And even when there's something that we've been looking forward to, a vacation that we're going to go on, this thing that's supposed to be amazing, we go on it, and even it doesn't live up because there's something wrong with everything. Everything is broken. What happens in Genesis chapter 3 tells us why. And this is so important for us to have conversations with friends and neighbors who do not know Jesus because everybody can agree that the world is not as it should be. We might disagree on how to fix it, but we can all agree this is not how it ought to be. Every person in the world knows of something that isn't quite right, something that is unjust, unfair, something that is heartbreaking, something that is difficult, something that causes suffering, that needs to be changed. And in God's word, what we find is how it all got this way. And we're going to work our way through this passage of scripture. And as we go, I'm going to show you the filters that keep coming up constantly separate us further and further from the truth that God established in the beginning. So look at, let's look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast 
of the field. God tells us from the very beginning, snakes are evil. You should have nothing to do with them. All right? That is my take. Now, a lot of times we read this passage and we suddenly have all these questions about snakes and the serpent and Satan. And it doesn't go into all of that right here. It tells us about Satan later because this passage of Scripture is not answering the question, who is Satan? This passage of Scripture is answering the question, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? A serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did God really say that? And she has a rebuttal. She comes back to him. And then he answers again. Look at verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Tim Keller has well pointed out that the fall of mankind doesn't start with an act, but it starts with an attitude. It doesn't start with an action. It starts with an attitude. And the very first filter that we see is Satan causes Adam and Eve to doubt God's word and to doubt his goodness. And he does this by sneering at the command of God. Notice he says, has God indeed said? Has God really said? Have you ever had someone say, did she really say that? Did he really do that? They're not asking if it actually happened. They're asking, was she really a big enough moron to say that? Was he really that unkind to do that? And what Satan is asking here is not, did it happen? But is God really so cruel and unkind that he won't allow you to enjoy this? He won't allow you to have this? Keller points out in that, that for every one argument that people have as to why God does not exist, you will run into 99 sneers about God. 99 attitudes about how people don't think that God's way of doing things is the right way. Satan doesn't show up to Adam and Eve and say, hey, this God, he doesn't exist. They knew him to exist. What he shows up in questions is God's goodness, his love, his grace. And think about that. They're in the garden, and they have life because God has breathed it into them. They're in this beautiful place that God has made possible. But that attitude, that, that mocking is enough to make them feel like maybe God isn't good. Listen, parents. I think that sometimes we worry about our children are going to go off to places and they're going to learn all these reasons that God isn't real and all of these arguments. I think probably what is more pervasive and more dangerous is the cultural feeling that God isn't good. The attitude, the sneering at God isn't good. Keller says when someone tells you they don't think God exists because why does this happen or this happen or why doesn't God do this or that? They're not giving you a reason that God can't exist. They're just telling you their attitude about what God is or isn't doing. It's not that they don't believe in God. It's just that they would rather God be more like what they think God should be like. Now, I don't think it would be very effective to say to something, listen, the only reason you don't believe in God is because you don't want to or you don't like him. But I think it's important for us to know that that's actually the element at play 
in those questions. It's in the heart. So filter one is this doubting God's word and his goodness. And then in verse six, we have the next three filters that all fall under temptation. Verse six says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Scripture will later teach us about the three types of temptation, that there is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh is what my body craves, what it wants. She sees that the tree is good for food. It looks delicious. She sees that the the tree is appealing to the eyes. It's, It's beautiful to look at. She sees that it's desirable to make one wise. It'll make her more important. It appeals to her pride. And every temptation that we face falls into one or more of these categories. And we can talk about this with our friends and neighbors because every one of us have faced temptation. Every one of us have seen something that we feel like, oh, that looks really good. Oh, I really want that. Oh, that'll give me status. That'll make me more important. That'll make people like me. We've all struggled with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And those three temptations, they rest upon the foundation of God doesn't want what's best for you. Because what we're saying is, you know what, I know God says I'm not supposed to sleep with someone who's not my spouse, but it looks good. I bet it'd be fun. I know God says that I'm not supposed to hold on to my anger and that bitterness isn't a good thing, but I think revenge would be awesome. I know God says this, but I feel, I think, I believe, and every one of us has fallen prey to these temptations, and we have dealt with the ensuing aftermath and consequences. We faced the music. And there's so much material for conversations with our friends and neighbors around the mistakes we've made. Listen, we should not approach it as, hey, listen, I've got all the answers. Let me tell you how life really works. Now, hey, let me tell you about the mistakes I've made. Let me tell you how I've seen those consequences come to play in my own life. Let me tell you how I've come to know that God's way is best. That even when it doesn't seem like God's way would be great, it is You see, our world has this this mindset or this concept, and we fall prey to it every time that we succumb to temptation. We have this lingering doubt. Is God's way really the best way? Is God's way really good, or is God holding out on me? Why wouldn't God let me have some of that tree? It looks so good. It looks delicious. If you've ever had a grandma who baked a cake and then didn't let you eat it, you know this feeling. Why won't God let me have it? Is God holding out on me? But for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we've come to recognize that God's ways are good. And they're not there. His rules, his commands are not there to keep us from having a great time. They're actually there to protect us, to bless us, to give us the greatest amount of joy. Let me, uh, let me explain a video game to you. 
Some of you might recognize it right off, but for those of you who aren't familiar with it, this is going to sound like not a great time. You're dropped off in a world and you have nothing. And anything you want, you have to make it with your bare hands. And the first tools you need are made of wood. And so the way that you get the wood is you punch trees. You chop them down with your hands. And once you've chopped down enough trees with your hands and you can make tools, then you can dig with the wooden shovel that you've made to get all the metal that you need. And then once you have all the metal you need, you can make the metal tools you need to be able to build your own house. And then once you've built your own house, then you can set up a farm so that you have food to eat. For those of us who are adults, this sounds like a lot of work. Not a great time. But I've just poorly explained the most popular video game in the world. I've explained Minecraft. And if that is the sales pitch, I mean, it sounds like that's a lot of work. How do we skip to the part where I get to shoot the bad guys? Minecraft is the most popular game in the world because anybody can come in and play. And they can move at their own pace. And they can figure it out. And as they do, they have a great time. Because their friend invited them along. People have this misconceived idea that God is here to harsh our vibe and to make our lives dull. But those of us who put our faith in Jesus have found that he gives us the greatest joy and the greatest peace. And what our friends need is someone who's living life alongside of them, enjoying all of that goodness that God has given us. Peter said, be ready to give an answer to the people who ask you about the hope within you. We should be living lives that provoke that question. We should be living lives that make people wonder, why are they so hopeful? Why are they so joyful? How do they have so much peace? Unfortunately, oftentimes Christians are the loudest critics and complainers. That should not be us. We should be people of hope and joy. Last week, Pastor Eric told us that it used to be that someone would believe and then their behaviors would change, and then they would belong. But now it works the opposite. The people need to belong. And then as their behaviors and patterns and values change, they come to believe. They need to be able to walk alongside a believer, a Christian, who is experiencing this good life that God has given us. I believe the greatest evangelism that we can do in this cultural moment is doing life alongside people and letting them know that there are people who believe in Jesus and have joy and love and hope. The hope of the Christian life should be one that sparks the question, what is different about that person? And at the filter of Doubting God in his word, the filters of temptation, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And then we have the filter of shame. Because verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The Bible has a lot of words that carry a whole lot of meaning. They're pregnant with meaning. We talk about walking with God, and we're not just talking about literally walking. We're talking about walking alongside of him in his word and his goodness, having a relationship with him. When we use the word nakedness here, it's not just pointing out that they were literally, physically without clothing. It's pointing out that they were completely exposed 
and they saw themselves. As Pastor Eric mentioned earlier, that Hebrews refers to, and they had shame. And the immediate reaction here is they hide from one another. I mean, who else are they hiding from? God isn't here at this moment. He shows up in just a little bit. But they, it's just the two of them and a bunch of animals in a garden. It's husband and wife. But they feel shame. And they make clothes. They sew fig leaves together to cover their bodies. They create the idea of clothing the word that is used here for what they sew together with fig leaves is an apron. Um, if you've been to the hospital, you've had surgery, you probably had something similar to an apron that they put you in. I don't know about you, I never felt adequately covered in that, in the apron. They had to put something together, something that could cover them. Sin always creates distance between people. It always encourages hiding and pretending. Sin always causes us to try to put a filter up, to appear to be something other than what we really are. Recently, I heard a comedian, he was, he was joking about the fact that Spanx, this company that they make, you know, shapewear clothes that you can put on that makes you look thinner, moves your fat into the right places so maybe it looks more like muscle, that they are opening stores in airports. And he's like, who is on a trip? And like, yeah, I need to get and everyone. Because you know who the majority of people flying? It's business travelers. It's people trying to earn the status to go and give this sales pitch, to give this presentation for people to put their trust and confidence in them. They're wanting to win someone over, and they have this insecurity, and if they can look a little bit better for the presentation, they're going to buy that garment to help them look a little bit more presentable, a little bit thinner. We crave acceptance and inclusion and status and all that we grab in this world are just fig leaves to cover our nakedness. Fig leaves to cover our insecurities and our shortcomings. And what the culture wars tempt us to do is to enter into a fight and a debate with people on their terms because they want to be included. They're craving for inclusion. And oftentimes, Christians, we will find ourselves in the middle of these culture wars and go, I just can't believe that these people think, I just can't believe these people are doing it. Yes, yes, we can believe that they're doing this. We can believe that they're grasping for these things because we know that deep in their hearts, they want acceptance and inclusion. They want love and community, and they're grasping at anything they feel like will give them those things. Our response should not be anger or disbelief, our response should be empathy because we know the need of their heart. We know what it is that they crave most. Recently, I've been listening to a podcast that's covering the history of the rise of the gender debates in our current culture, and they, they traced it back to this watershed moment where all of these teenagers got online, they all had access to smartphones and internet, and there was this app called Tumblr, and on Tumblr there was this, this, this community that where people could talk about how they didn't feel at home in the current gender that they were in. And there was an incredible amount of love and acceptance and praise poured on those people for being so brave. And that, because it was celebrated, became replicated again and again and again. 
And so many of the people that you talk to or that are thought leaders in that movement, they got their start there at a place where they felt loved and accepted and included. It's just another fig leaf. It's another apron. Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And remember, they've already crafted these aprons of fig leaves And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Friend, I promise you that whatever you can stitch together with status or identity or stuff, whatever stuff you can stitch together to to tell yourself that you're good enough, that it just falls apart when God shows up. Those aprons of fig leaves was not enough covering when God walked up. And they still felt a need to hide. And our friends and neighbors all around us are clutching at the the elements of this life and of this world, looking for something that will give them love and inclusion to make them feel like they're not naked to the shortcomings that they have. Filter six is, filter five is shame that causes us to hide from one another. Filter six is shame that causes us to hide from God. And then filter eight, this eighth moment that we see happen here that obscures more and more of the truth. God shows up, they hide, and so God calls out to Adam. Verse 10, so he said, Adam is responding, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God says, what's going on? Who told you that you're naked? Who told you that you need to be covered? Verse 11, and he said, who told you you're naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I command you that you should not eat? And what is Adam's answer? Yes, I did. Is that what he says? No. He says, the woman you gave me, God, it was your idea. You gave me this woman. She gave me of the tree. And I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent. He deceived me. That eighth filter is blame. And we always prefer to blame someone else for our problems. It's someone else's fault. It's, it's, it's my spouse's fault that I'm this way. It's my parents' fault that I'm this way. It's our world's fault that I'm this way. God, it's not my fault. It's, it's kind of your fault because you allowed these things to happen to me. It's blame. It's looking for someone else to be culpable. Someone else to be responsible. And and listen, what what I'm talking to you about this morning, it's not going to come up in everyday conversation about the weather or this week's NFL games. But if you get into some serious conversations, you get below the surface level small talk with people, all of this stuff is present in everyday life. Talk with your coworkers about our current political system. They'll be quick to blame. Well, it's the other side. It's the immigrants, it's the elites, it's the poor. 
it's easy to find someone to blame. And if we're not careful because we, we want to fit in and we want to be part of it, it's easy to jump on that bandwagon and join them in blaming these other people. But we know that that's not the answer. We know that deep within the heart of every person, there is this need to stand before God, to be covered, to be at peace. And listen, listen, believer. We can enter into these conversations and we can have these deep conversations with our friends and neighbors and we don't have to worry that we're putting the gospel in jeopardy because it stands up to the test on its own. We shouldn't have this culture of blame and opposition within the church. We shouldn't approach our culture and say, oh man, this world, it's so evil, it's so wrong, it's so bad, this government is so horrible. No, we should be entering into all of those arenas, ready to speak of the hope that's within us. Do you know who Peter was talking about? Who was talking to in 1 Peter chapter 3? He's talking to a group of believers who are being persecuted. They're being thrown out of their homes. They're being arrested. They're losing access to their jobs. And these are the people that Peter is saying, be ready to answer any man that asketh you a reason for the hope that you have in the face of this persecution, in the face of this hardship, in the face of this difficulty. Previous to this, Peter has been telling them that they need not worry because they are God's people. They have an inheritance that was not purchased with hands, but rather purchased with his blood. Genesis chapter 3 is all about the fall, how everything gets broken. And next week, we'll see how God fixes it. But right here in this passage, God gives us a little foreshadowing. He gives us a little glimpse of how he's going to fix it. The next section of verses is God delivering the curses that will be on all of us. Suddenly, it will be hard. It will be difficult to bring children into the world, to raise crops, to do any type of work. It's just going to be rough. It's the, it's the curse. It's the consequences for sin. But in the middle of that curse, when he's cursing the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, you're going to walk on your belly and the dust of the earth all of your life, and you will be at enmity with the woman. And her seed will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. And what God is giving us a glimpse of there in that moment is, I'm sending a son. I'm sending a savior who will be born into this cursed and broken and hard dirt world. He will walk the dusty roads that the snakes slither on and he will crush the head of the serpent. He will crush the work of Satan and bring redemption and freedom to his people. That is our hope. That even though this world is broken, that God is still at work and mending it. When this happens in the Garden of Eden, God doesn't throw his hands up in the air and say, oh my word, what am I going to do with y'all? 
You ever been there? Just like so fresh, I, I don't even know. I, I got to walk away. I just, I got to leave. God says, hey, give me a millennia to figure this out. No, God immediately says, here's what's going to happen. Here's how I'm going to fix this. Here's how I'm going to make it right. And in the middle of that broken moment, he provides us with hope. Believers, we can enter into our world, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces with that hope. And that hope, that hope can give us a life that's worth asking about. You know, I, I really appreciated Pastor Eric's illustration of the Walkman last week. And he looked at it from the angle of the world, seeing the message of Jesus as outmoded and outdated. But I want to finish this morning by looking at it from the other angle. Because I think there are times that even in the church, we can think of the message of Jesus in a similar way. We attach the message of Jesus to some particular delivery system. We think of the message of Jesus as completely enmeshed with this is how you listen to the song. This is how you listen to it play back. Do you know what happened after those people showed up at our door back several years ago? And I thought, you know, maybe knocking on every door isn't going to be the most effective way to reach this community. Do you know what happened when I decided to take a different approach evangelistically? I got pushback from other pastors and ministers and even people who were in our congregation. They thought I was giving up. No, I'm not giving up on the message of the gospel. I'm trying to find another way to proclaim it. You see, oftentimes we put the message... And we mesh it with the method. Last week, uh, you're so kind to, to honor us being the anniversary of, of when we came to pastor here. And I was looking back at photos. And there's a photo of Nicole and I in Haven, who'd just been born. It's like 2012. And we're standing in front of the church sign. And, she, and, and Nicole said, are you sure that's 2012? I'm like, yeah, I mean, Haven is there in the photo. It's 2012. She goes, but the sign, you, we hadn't changed the sign yet. We hadn't updated the sign? No, we hadn't updated the sign. Because, because here's the reality. As, as a pastor over the last 18 years, any change that's been made has required an incredible amount of leadership capital because we get so attached to the way we are doing things. And we are believers who have been clothed with God's goodness and His grace and His mercy, but we will begin to clutch onto our own religious fig leaves that we do not need. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter uses the word apologia. That's where we get our word apology and apologetics. You're familiar with an apology. It's when you say Sorry but it has an idea of explaining, this is the reason I did this. Apologetics is a defense of the faith, and it carries the idea of reasoning and logic because it's a compound of the words apo and logos, apo meaning out of, logos meaning truth or ideas. Out of this word, out of this idea, out of this truth, and it's an explanation of why. And Paul and Luke use this word often when they're speaking of times that they've stood in front of a court and they've had to answer for why they keep doing the things that they're doing. And yes, there's an element here of reasoning and logic. 
But there's also an element of, I have a hope that transcends all methods. I have a hope that transcends all cultures. I have a hope that transcends all times, all cultures, all situations. I have a hope in Jesus, and it is the reason why. That hope is Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not Faith Church. It's not Pastor Daniel. It's not how we currently do things. And so this month, as I'm challenging you to have conversations with your friends and neighbors, don't feel like it's, oh, we're, we're departing from some way we've always done it. No, we're trying to take this hope, this truth, this reason that we have and share it with people, how they can hear it right now. In our community group this past week, the answer to one question was someone said, that's a complex conversation. Yeah. They all are right now. It's no longer a three-point sales pitch. It's simply getting the music that resonates with every heart into the hearts of people around us. And if the most effective way is a Walkman or a Discman or Spotify or whatever, sign me up because I want people to hear the song of Jesus, that he has come to destroy the works of Satan with his blood. Let's bow our heads for a word.